0: money is not life's report card it's a tool and you want the tools to work for you and you never want to confuse net worth with self-worth
1: welcome to the millennials and money podcast the podcast dedicated to encourage millennials to continue to make wise decisions with their money we find some of the best ways to learn is through stories so each week, your host and wealth advisor Payne Boyer invites a millennial guest on the show to share their money story. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello, guys. I'm here today with a very special guest. I'm here with Neil Godfrey. And you guys know normally I start the show by telling how I how I know my guests because they offer all from my natural market. But Neil, you, my friend, are my first guest that reached out to me and found me. So I'm excited to have you here. Say hello, Neil. It is great to be with you, Peyton. I love your work, and we found you. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm glad that my people are finding me. That's good news. So, Neil, after as soon as you initially found me and sent me a message, I did my thing. As us millennials always do, we, we go straight to Google and research the person who we come in contact with. And I got to tell you, I was very excited with what I found. I saw that you are... A financial expert like myself, you're a New York Times bestseller, which is awesome. You on Oprah, which is huge. <laughs> you know, once you once you've been on Oprah, you've you've reached that creme de la creme. And and you know, you you talked you made your kind of claim to fame by talking to kids about money, which is really cool because the kids that you're talking to is, is us, was us. We are we are those millennials and Now we're adults and we're learning through the same things that you went through. So I'm sure you have tons of insight that you can share with us and help us go along the right path. So why don't you start by saying hello, Neil, and introducing yourself a little better than I did.
0: No, Payne, it's great to be with you. And um, as you said, I like to work with the multi-generations to encourage you guys to take charge of your financial lives. So I went on my own journey. Um, Do you want me to talk a little bit about that
1: and how I came to this? So so before we go there, let's talk about how you found us, how you found us at Millennials of Money.
0: I found you through my chief marketing officer who was going through LinkedIn and searching for people who shared my passion. To educate the next generation about money and to empower people to take charge of their financial lives. And Peyton, you popped up and it was wonderful to find somebody who also shared that passion to empower people. And here we are. So we're excited.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great fit, man. I'm just so excited. Normally, I start the show by just asking people, you know, I find people's general mindset around money and their concepts around money. Um, they're formed at a young age of course they can always change but that's where those initial seeds get planted so before we go to your story why don't we talk about what money was like for you and your household as you were growing up when you were a child
0: well it's interesting actually that you said that Peyton because um, when I was a small child um, my family had relatively a lot of money and then um, when I was about 15 years old, my father was in a very serious car accident and actually lost his business and lost everything. And the family was bankrupted. So I went to work at age 16 and have been working ever since. So I put myself through college um, and I've been you know, supporting myself since age 16. So what was interesting was having the ability to know what it was like to have money and know what it was like to then have nothing. And it was okay. So we all went to work and we all took care of ourselves. And so it's more fun to have money, Peyton, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> as
0: long as you're efficient and you know that you can handle yourself, that's, what's really important. So I know that I can, and I've taken my you know, care of myself for the last 60 years and raised my children to be self-sufficient, too.
1: That's awesome. So you're from a different time than us, the majority of our listeners. And I, I don't know, but I'm assuming at 16, being a woman in our country at those times, it probably was pretty tough to find a job. What was it like getting work at 16 as a woman? And that that had to be, what, the 70s? Was it the well, 70s?
0: It's Yeah, it was the 70s, and it's very interesting that you said that because um, in my day, women were supposed to have what we called pink-collar jobs. They could be nurses. They could be teachers. They could be secretaries, but they were never the ones who were going to be in the forefront, really being the doctors, being the principals of the school, or even being the executives in corporations. So even though my mother didn't raise me to do that, to take a back seat, she basically said, you can do anything you want, just go be the smartest person in the room. So I always knew I had to be the smartest person in the room. And then when I was presented with opportunities, I just said, why not? I mean, Chase Manhattan Bank in 1972 decided it would have an experiment and hire a few women to become executives. What I later found out is that the experiment was supposed to fail to show that women should not be in banking, but didn't work out that way. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, a success, obviously, and that's how I started my career.
1: That that's awesome. So let's let's go there. What was that like? The experiment that was supposed to fail, and I'm assuming that you're one of the reasons why it succeeded. So what was that journey like?
0: Well, I never looked at myself as a pioneer. I just looked at myself as being out there doing it. And I had to go do it. And I wanted to do it. And I wanted to learn. So this is interesting. When I was hired, I was hired at the same rate that the men in my training class were. Now, remember, it's 1972. So we were paid $11,000 a year. Just go with me on that, Peyton. <laughs> that was,
1: it was a good job.
0: I know, like, what? But after two weeks of working there, I was called into the head of personnel, which was human resources. And she said, you're a woman. You're taking the job of a man. We're going to reduce your salary to $6,500 a year.
1: Wow. So they, <laughs> they reduced not- my
0: salary.
1: I can't imagine that being legal. (laughs) It was
0: legal in those days. Obviously, it's not now, but we had to break the ground for the rest of you to follow us. Um, So what happened was, is that I said, what do I have to do to earn the same amount that the men are? And she said, "Uh, graduate first in the credit training program. And I said, "Okay." so I I did. I graduated first um, and I went back to her and I said, ta-da, I graduated first. Um, And I said, I'm looking forward to being brought up to the same salary. And she said, well, who told you that? And I said, "Uh, you did. And she said, no, you're taking the job of a man. You're a woman. You don't belong here. You'll never earn what the men are earning because you're taking their jobs. So if you extrapolate with bonuses and salary and now my pension from Chase, it's cost me $2 million not to be paid what the men were being paid.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Isn't that crazy? So we opened up, you know, the first ones of us that were in there to show them that it could work and that we could be as talented um, as the men and be as productive. Uh, it took us to sort of open the ways. We didn't even have the words affirmative action. That didn't exist in the 1970s. That didn't come in until the 80s. We didn't have the words for equality. The Fair Credit Act, Peyton, had not been enacted until 1974. That meant women could not get credit with their own signature. Oh my God. I could not get my own credit card. My first credit card had my husband's name on it, who had no credit because he was a law student. I was an executive. And my credit card had his name on it with a permission slip from him for me to use my own money. Can't believe that. That's stuff you guys can't even imagine, right? That's right. I really can't. So those were the days and it's not that long ago. I mean, you know, I'm way older than you are, but I'm not
1: so, so given all that and all the challenges and all the hurdles you had to overcome, how, how'd you, what was next? What was Did you stay at Chase? What made you go? I, I know you actually left and started your own thing. What, what drove that?
0: Well, I loved my time at Chase. I mean, there was no question, you know, obviously I was discriminated against, but I loved the learning. I was able to put together the largest merger at that point in the history of the United States, the DuPont-Conoco merger. It's the first time we did billions of dollars in a merger. And I was able to put that together. And that was really cool. Um, And I was really given and exposed to a lot of very high-level finance. And, you know, that set me up in learning for the rest of my life. I hit the glass ceiling after about 13 years, and then I decided... That it was time to leave and I was offered at age 34 to be president of the First Woman's Bank in New York. And we needed the Woman's Bank, as I told you, because we didn't have a fair credit act and women couldn't couldn't get money. So I joined First Woman's Bank in 1985. And that was pretty cool. And at that point, I was a single mom of two little kids. Actually, I joined the bank pregnant and had the baby later, but then I was divorced.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like you've just taken every challenge that comes your way, like, and you've been ready for it. Like, even from the time you were 16 and your dad lost, your dad lost the job, you got, you said, okay, I'm going to go work. I'm going to go do it. It and then when they say you, you can't make the same money as a. Male at Chase, you say, okay, well, I'm going to do my best to make that happen. And then now you're at this point, you're divorced, single mom, new job. You're still going after it. What was that driving factor come from? What what gave you that tenacity?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, y- you just have to do what you have to do. So you go do it and you have to leave The last place was better than where we found it. When I left Chase Manhattan Bank, my division that I was heading up and I was heading up a global division um, of people. When I left, I left it with half women and half people of color. Wow! That was unknown to Chase Manhattan Bank at that point. And I left it way better than when I found it. And I didn't make a stink about it I just did it. It was my division and I could hire who I wanted. And my division was per capita, the most profitable per head, and also audit-wise, the cleanest. We were a profit group within Chase, and it was stellar, and that's how I left it. So that was
1: that was pretty cool. That is cool. Let's talk about our so, first, first, yeah. first Women's Bank. First what Women's, was- yeah.
0: Well, what was interesting about that is when I got there, I saw women be very disempowered handling their own money. And that seemed ridiculous to me. So I did research and I found out that it was because we were never taught anything about money when we were kids. So my two children were young and I went to look for books to teach my own kids about money. And there were no books to teach kids about money. It was not a topic in the United States. Our largest capitalistic nation in the world, we were not teaching our children about money. And that seemed really ridiculous. So at one of the bookstores, my three-year-old daughter said to me, mommy, rather than take us to keep looking for books, and there are none, why don't you just write the books? So I sort of looked at her and because I knew how to be a bank president and I knew how to do big corporate work, but I didn't know how to write a book. And she saw the look on my face, Peyton, and she said to me, oh, you're afraid. (laughs) So here I, I, I crouched and I established eye contact with this little kid. And I said, no, I'm not afraid. But of course, I was afraid. I was way outside my comfort zone, but I went and figured it out like I've always done. So I figured it out. How do you write a book? And what does it look like? And if you're going to educate kids, you have to entertain them. So I created um, cartoon characters that have financial personalities, because that's how we are connected with money. It's We're connected with the way we handle money, not our socioeconomic level. We're savers or spenders, and it doesn't matter how much money you have. So I wrote a book, and if you're going to write a book and start a new topic, you go to the world's largest publisher. So that was Simon & Schuster at that point, and I got an appointment at Simon & Schuster and went running in with The Kids Money Book in manuscript form. And I said, we can educate children all over the world to empower them to take charge of their financial lives. Here's the kids' money book. And they said, thanks for stopping by. There are no books to teach kids about money. (laughs) We're not going to take a risk to publish on a new topic. And they banished me to the streets of New York. Man, you pretty much know the story that what happened was what I really figured out was they needed, well, they, they needed proof of concept. So what I did is I opened up the first children's bank, a real bank for kids at FAO Schwartz, which is a toy store in New York city, a real bank for just for children and then i also opened up an institute for youth entrepreneurship up in harlem to work with at risk children to bring them into the economy and i it was through the institute of youth entrepreneurship and we started a greeting card company with 11 year olds to show them they could become entrepreneurs up in harlem and it was very successful and we started the company. So we started a greeting card company and also um, the, uh, you know, the first children's bank. In fact, Peyton, Princess
1: Diana flew over with the royal children and opened up the camps at my little bank. Isn't that cool? That is really cool. That That's cool, man. Your whole journey so far has really amazed me. I'm excited that, that you're sharing this with us because there's a lot to learn. And I'm really just—I really love the fact that you overcame all those hurdles. Like it seemed you kept getting doors shut in your face, and you kept figuring out a way. And I thought—I thought that was a millennial thing. I guess baby boomers were doing it too. But I feel like a lot of times we see—we we see a problem, and we say we look for a solution for it first of all. Like you were looking for that book for the kids, talk to kids about money, and then eventually we see there's nothing like that out there there needs to be something like this out there. I guess I have to make it. And so I thought it was our thing, but it looks like you were one of the pioneers of that and you made it happen.
0: Well, you just have to keep going. If you believe in something, then just keep going. So after, you know, it was very successful with the first Children's Bank and also with the Institute for Youth Entrepreneurship up in Harlem, I went back to Simon & Schuster and I said, ta-da. Everybody has covered this. Everyone did an article on what we were doing at FAO Schwartz and and what we were doing up in Harlem. And it was big news. And Simon & Schuster still said to me, we're not going to take a risk on publishing a book to be the first out there. We, We will not take you on as a property. So again... I was told, no, the door slammed. I was banished back out to New York with my manuscript. So what I did was I decided, you know what? There are other ways you can do this. I knew how to buy and sell companies from my days at Chase Manhattan Bank. And if I could do it with the world's largest merger, I could do it with a little merger for myself. So what I did, Peyton, is I bought a publishing company. So I bought a division of Macmillan called Checkerboard Press. And at the bank closing, the bank turned to me and said, by the way, you're chairman of the board, you're running the company. Hmm. And I said, I I don't want to run a publishing company. And they said, well, you are. (laughs) So I ran the publishing company, but obviously... They published my book because I could fire everybody, which I made perfectly clear. I said to them, I'll make it easy for you. We're publishing my book. So they published, obviously, the the kids money book. We sold 50,000 copies of it. I sold the company and went back to Simon & Schuster. And then Simon & Schuster said to me, yes will take you on because there's another book that shows proof of concept. Wow. And so they published, they took me on as a property. And then they published my first adult book called Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Responsible Children.
1: So, uh, th- and that- then
0: the phone rang one day, Peyton.
1: So So that book I want to yeah. talk about, because I did watch some of your interview and I and, and it's talking about your generation talking to our generation because we were the kids about money. And my parents didn't read the book because I was one of those kids who I talked to my many of my clients, we talk about like our parents never talked to us about money. It was kind of like, hey, we earn money. you stay there, you're a kid, be a kid don't worry about what's going on over here. So talk to us about how you saw that was an issue and how you overcame that.
0: Well, my thing was, is in the very beginning, I couldn't get people to listen to me because it was very much the way you were raised. We don't talk to kids about money. So what I would say to people then is And it was hard for me to get anyone to listen to me that this was important. So I said to them, don't you want your kids to be financially independent? Don't you want your kids to be able to get a job and understand how to handle money? Don't you want your little girls mostly to learn about money? Or do you want them always to be taken care of by a male? because in my generation many of our mothers your grandmother didn't even know how to write a check
1: or know where the money was or know what the insurance policies were or know what would happen to her i'd like to kind of comment on that you know my grandfather recently passed and my grandfather was a great man he took a lot he took great care of my grandmother but now my grandmother for the first time is she's, she's financially responsible for what's going on in the household. And there's so many things that I'm, thank God I'm here to help her through. Cause she just does not know how she didn't know what to do to get her insurance benefit. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is just the way it was then I guess. So I can definitely relate to what you're saying.
0: It's exactly what it is. And there were so many people of that generation And so when I started saying that to people, then they were like, yeah, this is important. Yeah, we do have to do something about it. And I said, ta-da, I'm here. That's what I want to do. I want to make it comfortable for kids to be raised understanding that money is just part of life. And it's just something that you have to learn to deal with. And that's what I do.
1: So you were saying that the phone rang. Talk so about the phone ringing.
0: Ah, uh, the phone ringing. Yes. Okay, so the phone rang. And my daughter picked it up and came running into the room and said, Mommy, Oprah is on the phone. And I said, no, 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 no. It's not Oprah. I have a friend who does Oprah impersonations. It's not Oprah. So I picked up the phone and I did... Oprah impersonations to Oprah. Oh, my God. Go, girl, give it your best shot. Climb every mountain. So I'm like the biggest jerk in the world. So my daughter got a piece of paper and wrote down and said and held it up to me. She was 10 years old and said, you can ruin your life, but don't ruin mine. It's Oprah. Cut it out. So I was quiet on the phone and I thought, oh, man. So... That's how the relationship started. I was I worked with Oprah on air for for four and a half years. I did 13 different shows. I worked more than any other contributor at that point with Oprah than anyone else who had ever been on the show. And um, that book hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It sold millions of copies because of Oprah.
1: That's amazing.
0: So for me, yeah, it was pretty cool because for me, I didn't have to keep explaining to people
1: why it was important. People understood why it was important. So let's talk about the impact your book has had now that your children are adults. I'm sure, sure they're not the only children you know who read it, but how are your kids, how, how, how have they developed and how have they done for themselves?
0: Well, it's interesting because both my children are entrepreneurs. My son is a social entrepreneur. He's put together 33,000 Indian families who are growing organic cotton in India. And he's put them together with the first blockchain international cotton coalition for them to have um, human rights and Water, clean water and social and women are educated in healthcare in India. And it's really pretty cool. So he's a social entrepreneur and he's got projects around the world. Um, and he's president of a company called world merit where he's putting millennials together in their own countries around the world to have projects impact, social impact projects. And my daughter is an entrepreneur in the wellness space and she has a company called tune.studio and what she does is through technology has a program using vibroacoustic technology to reduce stress and increase wellness in people so it's really very
1: cool to see these two kids thrive that's awesome that, that's that's an accomplishment like i tell me and my wife we always say is if we have kids who are successful and who love each other, love God and love us, and I feel like we've succeeded as parents. So congratulations. You've done a great job at raising these two children. And,
0: no, that's it. And, and as a parent, and also as a parent, I, I had a tough time having kids. I lost nine children and I have two kids and They were miracle children. They were also both supposed to die. So it's really amazing to see these two kids be healthy and thrive. And they're absolutely a miracle and and certainly a gift from God. And I have two grandchildren, which make it even cooler.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, got to say that. Thank God for that. That's amazing, your story. And I got to say... I think my parents love my my kids and they're the grandkids more than they love us. I don't know what it is, but those grandkids they get spoiled a lot more than. Oh me. yeah, no. Nope. <laughs> yeah,
0: no question about it, Peyton. That's that's the deal. That's uh, that's what we signed up for.
1: Yeah. That's funny. So let's talk about you today, Neil. But um, it's been, you know, you're super successful. You know. I'm assuming that you don't have a need to work, but you're still driven by some passion to get out there and help people. So what is it it that's driving you now to keep keep pushing your vision?
0: Well, I think it's really important to support the next generation. You know, I would like to think that I have a little wisdom because I've sort of been there and done that and been doing it for a long time. And I think it's important to support people like you, Peyton, Um, with the next generation who are gonna make a difference. And I'm also an executive in residence and an innovation fellow at Columbia Graduate School of Business. And I mentor students, and I'm also involved in teaching a course that teaches about how to do innovation. So I'm very excited about that, working with the next generation of you guys, of entrepreneurs. I also work with another group out of Syracuse University who are working with wounded veterans because the vets have come back and they're wounded and they can't do what they thought they were going to do in life. So we help them to become entrepreneurs. So that's another program that I work with millennials on helping them to direct their lives. I and love, I'm, I just came out with my new book.
1: I love all the stuff yeah. you're doing. I so love it. I just really, well,
0: I think we have to keep going. And um, the, you know, I mean, we've got the next generation to take care of. And we're we're parents and grandparents, and it's our responsibility. So my new book is called Be Money Smart in Tough Times parents and grandparents and your audience can find it on amazon it'll be up there soon and it's to help all of you with the next generation of kids of any age
1: that, that's great we'll leave a link to your to your book and uh, the new book on in the show notes so people can go see it and find it easily so one thing i've learned it one thing I've learned is millennials, it's it's hard to think that we don't know it all. A lot of times we think we know it all and we've seen it all. And we think that you guys are kind of stuck in the 70s and the 80s and you guys can't tell us things that we can learn from. But I've learned, you know, my business partner, he's a he's a baby boomer. And I've learned sometimes I just gotta shut up and listen and realize he's where I like to be. He, he started the firm. Let me see what I can learn from him and stop thinking I know it all. So what are some things you can tell us that we can use to benefit ourselves? As we're, we're, I'm 34. I'm about the age you were when you started at, um, at Chase. So what are some things you can share with us?
0: I like your advice of shut up and listen. I think what's interesting is that um, I'm going to quote you, Peyton, because I think shut up and listen The fact of the matter is that every generation thinks they're smarter than the generation before. My generation thought that, you know, my parents were ridiculous and they didn't know anything and they were dinosaurs and we were the smart ones. What's different in this world is the delivery system of the information. The truth is the information's not different. It's just the way you deliver it. It's the digital world. It's that connectivity, which is great. And that's wonderful. And we can learn from you, but you guys can also learn from us. Um, You know, Bitcoin and all this, this is like, wow, this is really new. Well, it's fiat currency. All currency is fiat. We've all decided to accept dollars and say, you know, these little pieces, green pieces of paper have value because a bunch of people got together and said that they did. Well, back you know, after the cavemen, you know they used pine cones and dog's teeth and and um, rocks as fiat currency and shells. Okay, well, not much has changed. So if you want to call it Bitcoin, that's great because a bunch of people got together and said that it has value. It's just a way of delivering it because now we have the internet and we can have digital currency. Just, it's just a different way of delivering what we've always had. So it's not so new and different. <clears throat> the different part is the delivery. But we always communicated. Cavemen communicated with each other. Cavemen wrote things on the wall. That's a form of communication, that they were communicating to other people who were going to come by. They told their story. It's just right now we tell our story differently. And your children's children will be telling their story differently. We're gonna be mentally connected with each other. We will, you know, there's not gonna be anything like a plastic card. We're gonna be using, you know, our retina or some other scanning tool. Um, That's gonna be our credit card. That's gonna be the imprint for money and who we are. But it doesn't matter. So we do have a lot to learn from each other. We can learn the technology. We can learn more of the, you know, the way the world is connected from you guys. You just need to have patience because we don't navigate as fast as you do. We don't click as fast as you do. And you guys can learn from us too. So we both have to shut up and listen.
1: I like that. I like that idea is just, cause I, I gotta tell you, I'm living proof. I'm someone who can be, who could have been in the past very contentious and think i know it all and and i and i just try to always think my way was the best when i'm talking to this um to my partner and thank god for his patience because i realized this guy has built a successful practice and he's given me all this insight why don't i shut up and listen so that we we have to we're going to have to coin that term shut up and listen so you you were an expert yeah in- you are you're an expert of communicating money with children, and us baby boomers, we have kids now. My, I'm sorry, us millennials, we have kids now. My uh, oldest daughter is she's she's 13 years old. She's a she's a teenager, and my youngest is four. And they're different they're different age groups, but I know they need to start understanding the value of money, because I, I I know they can't just think they can buy whatever they want and they think it's endless. And these are two different ages, 13 and a four-year-old. How would you first start communicating money with a 13-year-old and then let's go to the four-year-old?
0: With a 13-year-old, you have to start teaching the concept of finite. This is the amount of money that you have to spend and you have to learn to budget it. I want them to earn their money also. So I want her to also have jobs around the house where she can earn money. And... Then you can load some of that money on a debit card and let her learn to budget. That's the amount that you're going to have to spend. If you give her money for clothing, give her a certain amount, a finite amount, and work with her on building a budget. First, she needs to write down what she thinks she needs, and it'll be, you know, five pairs of designer jeans. Yeah, what were you going to say? So, uh, so
1: that, where, um, and then, yeah. What do we, ba- where, where do we draw the line that this is what we buy for her? Cause she is my daughter, but then this is what you're going to be responsible for buying for yourself. Is there a balancing there?
0: Yeah. I mean, the stuff for school, I think you should buy, but, um, you know, if she's playing a sport, you can buy, Cheaper sneakers are really, really expensive. So that's something you negotiate with her. You'll buy the medium pair of sneakers, the cost, and let her then pitch in her own money or earn the money for the more expensive. And then with clothing, I think it's a perfect thing because let's say you want to give her a couple hundred dollars per quarter to buy her clothing or maybe less, whatever, twice a year, whatever it is, you decide. And then let her and say to her, that's it. I'm not giving you any more. If you want more, then you have to earn it. But that's what I'm giving you. Here's the debit card. You can go online or go into a store. That's it. That's all you get. Now let's go figure that out. You're not going to hit me up for more. You're not going to hit mom. You're not going to go to grandma and grandpa. That's it. I
1: think that's great advice. And they start to That's great advice. I'm going to, because this is something that, as a parent myself with a 13 year old, and especially being the dad who wants to spoil his daughter, but knows I want her to be the best woman out there. I can't, it's, it's, thank God my wife is, she doesn't want to spoil my, sometimes I feel like my wife hates her. But but no, I'm just kidding. She, I think that, I think 13 is that age where they kind of bump heads a little bit.
0: Well, if you both read the book and agree on things, because I have a whole section on there in Be Money Smart in Tough Times for uh, for you to look at teenagers, too. So the big thing is for the two of you to be on the same page and then you can set the rules because you don't want to undermine each other. You know, mom said no. And then you don't want dad handing. Here's another 20. Don't tell your mother. You don't
1: want to get into that. I like that advice. So let's go with the four-year-old now. What about this little guy?
0: Well, the little guy, what you have to do is connect the natural consequences of money. The only way you get money is to earn it. It's not that you nag. It's not that you say, I want something. He understands when you walk into a store or go online, you can buy things. But the only way you get that money is to earn it. So get him started on a little allowance system. He has to do some small chores, and you're teaching him the way a household works. You know, he can take the napkins out to the table. He can put the napkins in recycling. He can separate the whites and the colors on the um, laundry, teach him how to do that. He can dust. He can do little chores. And then when they're doing that, then you pay him. And I like you to pay his age per week. So he earns, you know, his age per week. And then get four clear plastic jars and divide the money. 10% goes to charity right off the top. You have to teach these kids that you need to give to people who are not as lucky as they are. And then you divide the money up the next third Of the money, 30%, goes to quick cash or instant gratification. He works hard. He can buy something, you know, that doesn't cost very much right away. Let's say you're in the grocery store and you know, kids always find something. Okay, you can buy that if you have enough quick cash. And then another third goes to medium term. So he's pushing off instant gratification to save a couple of weeks to get something even larger. And the last Jar is the third is long-term savings eventually that's going to be for college now does you know a three-year-old understand the concept of long-term savings no does a 10-year-old understand the concept of long-term savings no do the adults in america understand the concept of long-term savings no so let's start teaching them when they're little that you
1: don't get all your money just the way it works. I really appreciate that advice. That is some great advice. You know, Neil, we're, we're getting close to the end of the podcast. You've been an awesome guest. I'm so glad you came on and I'm so glad you, like, I, I, I took notes. I don't take notes during these podcasts, but you're really dropping knowledge that we can learn from. So I appreciate that. You know, I, I always get to, the end of the podcast, I ask all my guests the same question. This podcast is all about financial success. And the words financial success can mean different things to to different people. It can even mean different things to the same people, depending on when you ask them. So today, 2021, Neil, what do the words financial success mean to you?
0: For me, it means financial security that you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat wondering, how you're going to take care of your loved ones so that you truly live below your means. You have that ability to have money be a healthy part of your life, not the stress part of your life. Most marriages are broken up because of money issues. Most people have self-esteem issues because of money issues. Money is not life's report card. It's a tool and you want the tools to work for you. And you never want to confuse net worth with self-worth.
1: And that's what I would say about what success is. That was awesome. And I'm going to quote you now. You never want to confuse net worth with self-worth. I'm definitely going to use that one, Neil. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Right, thank you. I've loved to having you, you on. God bless Congratulations, guys. You've officially made it to the disclosure portion of the show. I'm an investment advisor representative of securities offered through Bertha Fisher and Company. Financial Services, Inc. BFCFS member finra sipc Homes Financial is independent of BFCFS. Thanks and have a blessed week.